I just apologise in advance that um, I'd, I'd made some changes to the talk. I'm not apologising for that, but um, I, I forgot to send through a revised uh, outline. It's, it's not all that different, but um, it's a little bit different to what you've got in your books. But you'll be able to, if you want to, you can copy stuff off the screen when it comes up. Um, and speaking of the screen, I need a... Okay. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach was born in 1685 in the German town of Einsnach uh, into a devout Christian family. Uh, in fact, all the boys were named Johann, so it's, the, it's actually the second name that they went by. So he, he was called Sebastian in his own family. Um, it was also a very musical family uh, in which the playing of the violin had been passed down from generation to generation. So Bach's father and all of Bach's uncles were professional museum, uh, musicians. And from a very early age, Bach was taught the violin by his father, uh, then the organ by his uncle, Christoph, and the clavichord by his older brother. And so by the age of 17... He was widely known as a gifted musician and he began to earn a living, actually, as a church organist. Uh, as the young Bach developed as a musician, he also grew to love and serve the Lord Jesus. As he played, he said that he felt his soul praising God. I play the notes as they are written, he once said, but God makes the music. Bach soon began to write church choir cantatas uh, based on passages of scripture. And before beginning a composition, Bach would often pray for God's help in the composition. And he would write the initials JJ at the top of the score before he started, which is short for uh, Jeju Juva. Or I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but it means Jesus help me. And as his skills developed, he composed for the organ, uh, the harpsichord, the flute, the violin, the orchestra and other instruments. Amongst his most acclaimed works today are the Brandenburg Concertos, uh, the wonderful Protestant Mass in B minor and the uh, equally wonderful St Matthew's Passion. But the amazing thing is that in his own lifetime, Bach was never recognised as a great composer. And few of his more than one, over 1,000 compositions were published in his lifetime. Today, he's considered to be one of the greatest composers of all time. Uh, in the United States alone, there are at least 44 separate Bach music festivals every year across the United States. But in his own time, Bach was only recognised as a musician. This didn't seem to concern Bach at all because he, he never wanted to be famous. He wanted God to receive the glory for his music and to remind himself and, and uh, others of this, when he'd finished a composition, he would write the initials SDG at the end and that's short for Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. 
he taught his students and his own children that the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. You see, Bach understood that in his labour as a musician and composer, he was called to reflect God's character as it's expressed in the Gospel. And that's what the initials SDG represented. That's what he meant as he wrote them. That should be up to the outline there. Uh, we saw this morning in chapter 1 and verse 9 that the work of Jesus not only saves us from the penalty of our sin, but in verse 9 Paul says that we are called to a holy life. That is, the gospel is to shape the way that we live, uh, the things that we do, the relationships that we have with others, the way that we understand our purpose to glorify God in the world. And I want you to see how this idea flows out of verses 13 and 14, where, where Paul makes his next key appeal to Timothy in verse 14. He says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And it's clear that when Paul uses the phrase, the good deposit entrusted to you, he means the gospel. Because that's exactly what he's just been talking about in the previous verses. Uh, Paul says in verse 11 that the gospel about Jesus is that for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher. And so when he goes on to write in verse 13, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, he can only be referring to this same gospel that Timothy has heard him so often explain. Uh, and remember from the first talk that, that Paul is chained, he's chained to a, a wall in a holding prison, a dungeon under the ground, while he waits for his final trial. He tells us in verse 12 that his arrest has something to do with his proclamation of the gospel. Paul expects his trial to end in his conviction and execution. And so he's writing to ask Timothy to come to him in Rome as soon as possible. But I guess it's a chance that Timothy won't make it in time. Paul might be dead before he gets there. And so Paul briefly covers some of the most important things that he has to say to Timothy before he dies. And here is one of them. Timothy, guard the gospel. But what does that mean? Well, I think Paul had two principal things in mind when he wrote verse 13. Uh, and I base that on the rest of the text. That's why we did a bit more reading so you'd under, understand the context. I think the meaning that is most obvious from the text is that Timothy is to guard and protect the content of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel is to, to guard it from distortion. Um, have a look again there at verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Uh, the pattern of sound teaching that Timothy has heard from Paul has to mean, as I said, the content of the gospel, what God has revealed. And the Greek word translated as pattern... Uh, means a model or blueprint or pattern from which identical items are then made. 
And Paul is saying that his own description of the gospel, his own explanation of the gospel that was revealed to him by the Lord Jesus is to be used by Timothy and by implication by the, the whole church as a pattern. And of course we have that pattern written down for us in the New Testament and in the wider sense of the gospel in the whole Bible. It's not just what Paul wrote down but all of the writers supervised by God who wrote the documents that together comprise our written scriptures, our Bible. So the Bible gives us our pattern, our content for the gospel. Why then would Paul need to say that this content needs to be protected? Well, it's because for years and years now, Paul and Timothy have been confronting false teachers in the church who distorted the content of the gospel. In fact, the reason Timothy is in Ephesus and not with Paul in Rome is because Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with false teachers. Now, the danger that is to be guarded against is that there are men and women who change the gospel in some way to suit themselves. They add things to the gospel or they, they take things away and that always changes the message of the gospel in some way. Uh, I remember yet very many years ago at our uh, Hunter Presbytery um, having a discussion with a lady named uh, Margaret Yee. She was a, a Presbyterian, ordained Presbyterian minister. Um, and she was serving as a chaplain at Oxford University in England. And over lunch, we started talking about the gospel. And uh, she began to tell me that the idea of God's judgment uh, had no place in the proclamation of the gospel. I was a bit taken aback. Um, she said that all of the students at Oxford needed to hear was that God loved them. That, that's the good news, she said. And, of course, I question why that is good news if you take away the truth about sin and judgment. Uh, the danger for the gospel is that people will corrupt it in some way and then present their distorted version of the gospel as, as God's truth. This was a huge problem in Paul's day. And of course it remains a huge problem today. Uh, Paul refers specifically to the danger posed by false teachers uh, three times in the letter. And we, we read about some of them in, in chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. So in, in chapter 2 and verses 14 to 19, then again in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, and again in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul refers to false teachers and false teaching and the danger that it poses. Uh, and so all of that flows out of what he's saying to Timothy in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Uh, let's have a look at, at chapter 2 verses 16 and 18 as an example. He says, Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread, spread like gangrene. Among them... Uh, Hymenius and uh, Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. Uh, how have they wandered away from the truth? Well, he, he goes on to say, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Uh, so these men, they've, they've altered the gospel by teaching. It appears that the resurrection is only spiritual. It's not physical. 
something spiritual, and it's already happened. Gone, it seems, is the hope of God's people reigning with Christ on a renewed earth in resurrected bodies. That's all gone because well, there's not going to be a physical resurrection. And Paul tells Timothy in chapters uh, 2, and, and I can tell you from my own experience, that when the gospel is changed by adding something or taking something away, the result for the church and for those who need the gospel is disastrous. Uh, when I started as a Presbyterian minister, uh, my first appointment was at Rutherford, and I was ordained and inducted there, and I also had uh, congregations at Curry, Curry, and Weston. And I found that there were some genuine believers there. Uh, praise God for that. But there were also many people in the church who had been there all their lives almost, who had, it seemed, almost no understanding of the gospel. And after, uh, I, that puzzled me. And after a few years, I discovered one source of the problem, uh, which was very tragic. Uh, I met the man who had been the home missionary at Curry Curry for many years. Uh, and he was still living in the area. And he started to come back to church. He was very elderly. I think he, by that stage, he was about 90. And as I visited him in his home, he told me that he could not believe that Jesus was the divine son of God. He did not believe that Jesus had physically risen from the dead. The resurrection for him, yeah, it was a spiritual thing. Nor did he believe that there would be such a place as hell. Uh, God could not send anyone to hell. And so the gospel that he preached at Curry Curry, if you could call it that, uh, for many years bore hardly any resemblance to the gospel that God has given us uh, to save us. Imagine how much the Lord Jesus was dishonoured as the truth about his glory was denied and the meaning of his death was reduced to a brave example and of course there was no saving gospel for the people to respond to. They just had to be good people. Is it any wonder that the churches at Curry Curry and Weston were in such a perilous state? Uh, largely because the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales in the first half of last century, had largely failed to guard the gospel. Uh, but you see, this has been a, a critical issue for the church right down through the centuries. Uh, let me show you another. Can't see that very clearly, can you? But um, uh, let me tell you that in 1692, the Reverend Thomas Hogg established a rather unique method of guarding the church from false teachers. Uh, from, 1645, uh, from 1654, he was the minister at the church at Kilturn. And that's the, a picture of the old church at Kilturn in the Scottish Highlands. In 1662, so what's that, six, eight years after um, he started his ministry there at Kilturn, um, following his restoration to the throne, King Charles II imposed bishops on the Scottish church along with the Anglican form of worship and uh, many in Scotland believed that the gospel itself was under attack and was being lost. In Kilturn, Thomas Hogg refused to recognise the, the authority of his new bishop. He was arrested for treason and later exiled to Holland until the, this whole disruption ended. It wasn't until 1691 or 30 years later 
that he was restored to his parish as its minister at Kiltern. Uh, and Thomas Hogg, when he, when he got back, he was appalled at the spiritual damage that had been done to his congregation in his absence when a different gospel to that of the New Testament had been preached. So, that's a picture of a grave. Sorry, you can't see it very clearly. He arranged for his grave to be placed right against the wall of the church when he died so that he would lay there in the ground as kind of a, a silent guardian and he had these words written on the gravestone. You can just about see those. It says, This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring any ungodly minister in here. <laughs> so uh, so that, that was on his gravestone. So by the term ungodly minister, I think that Hogg uh, meant one who deviated from the Reformed faith or the, uh, the biblical understanding of the gospel and God's word. And so his gravestone was his attempt to remind the church to guard the gospel in that part of Scotland and in the life of the church. You see, one of the methods that Paul gives to Timothy for guarding the content of the gospel is to train faithful men. Train faithful men with the gospel who will in turn teach the gospel to others in the churches. So it's a, it's a passing, a faithful passing on of the message training others in its content and uh, so that they can then teach others. There it is in chapter 2 and verse 2. Uh, and Paul says to Timothy, And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So I take it that Paul is talking about the training of elders and pastors. Uh, in the Presbyterian church, it's the elders who have a specific role in guarding the content of the gospel. And they must confront false teaching in our church whenever they find it. Uh, again, I can give you an example from our own presbytery in the Hunter. Um, some years ago, when I was, because I've retired now from uh, parish ministry, but um, I was at one of our presbytery meetings. Uh, so for those of you who don't understand the workings of the Presbyterian Church, the presbytery is the local governing body, so it's um, a, a, the minister and, um, and, and an elder from each congregation, and they meet usually monthly uh, to oversee the affairs of Presbyterian congregations in the region. So uh, we were having our presbytery meeting, and we broke into pairs to pray. And at the end of the prayer time, uh, we were just about to go into business and one of the members of the presbytery stood up and he, he called for the moderator's attention. The moderator is the chairman and he said, uh, moderator, as we spoke together in pairs before prayer, my brother here, and he indicated the, uh, the elder sitting next to him, uh, told me that he does not believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. And yet he's an elder in our church and he's a member of the presbytery. I believe that before we proceed with any further business, we need to address the issue of our brother's unbelief. Whoa, you, you could have heard a pin drop. 
Do you see what that man was doing? He was guarding the gospel. It wasn't easy. But every follower of Jesus has this responsibility in a general sense. Okay? It, 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 it may not be in a governing sense, um, if you're not an elder or a minister. But as you teach children, your own children, other people's children, and young people, the truths of the gospel, as you lead a Bible study, as you chat with colleagues at work, or friends at university or high school, make sure that as you discuss the claims of the Bible, you are being true to the gospel. You're being true to the Bible. That's how you, that's how you can guard the gospel. As you listen to the preaching in your church and, and my talks over this weekend, compare what is said with what the Bible says. Uh, remember the Bereans in Acts 17. Uh, how they examine the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. They were guarding the gospel. As, as Paul has reminded us, the Holy Spirit is our helper in this. The Holy Spirit helps us in, the, in this task by his word and as he, he works in us, he convinces us of the truth of his word and what the gospel really is. And so we are to guard the content of the gospel and I think that's the, the, the first way that, that Paul um, intends the gospel to be guarded. But Timothy is not only to guard the content of the gospel. He is to guard the gospel or keep it safe, um, safe from ridicule, safe from, uh, from uh, damage, by living out the gospel in a transformed life. When God's people, particularly those in leadership, live ungodly lives, then the gospel is compromised. Now think of the damage that has done by, been done by uh, the abuse of children in the church. The damage to the gospel, regardless of where it's happened. And the Lord Jesus is dishonoured, isn't he? Uh, and so Timothy is not only saved by the gospel from a terrible judgment to come, Chapter 1, verse 9 again, he's called to a holy life as God's image bearer. And this is what Paul means by the second part of verse 13, I believe, where he says to Timothy that he is to keep the gospel in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he's to guard the content of the gospel, he's to keep what he heard as a, as a pattern, he's to guard that pattern, the form of words, but he's also to keep the gospel in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Well, what on earth does that mean? It means that the gospel isn't properly guarded and God is not properly honoured if only the content of the message is kept pure. You know, we, we can be pure in our theology and in our doctrine, but completely dishonouring to God by the way that we live. So every letter in the New Testament spells out the implications of the, gospels on, the gospel on our lives and that our response to the gospel is not just believing what God has done in Christ but living transformed lives out in the world. Uh, in, so in Romans, for example, classic uh, example, after a detailed explanation of the gospel in Romans, 
we come to that pivotal statement in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, you know, on the basis of the content of the gospel, in view of God's mercy, your whole self is to be given over to God as an act of worship. The goal of the gospel is to redeem and transform God's people and God's world. It's about God reclaiming his creation rather than surrendering it to sin and death. And Timothy is not only to faithfully proclaim the gospel, something that's stressed throughout the letter, uh, and much of what we went on to read was about how Timothy was to handle his role as a, as a gospel teacher, but he's to live out the gospel in love and faith because that is what is meant by living under the rule of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. And to make this more practical for you so that you'll have something to, to actually take away and chew on and respond to you in, in your own life, I want you to see how the gospel is to shape Timothy's labour and therefore your labour. Uh, Timothy's labour is all the stuff that he does when he's not sleeping. I don't think you could say he was you know, labouring when he was sleeping. So when he's not sleeping, it's everything else. It's his work. It's all that he does in life. Uh, first of all, notice some of the work imagery that Paul uses in this letter so that you'll see that I'm not just making this up. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 3, Timothy is likened to a good soldier who serves his commander. In chapter 2 and verse 5, he's likened to an athlete who works hard at competing. And in verse 6, to a hard-working farmer. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul calls on Timothy to be a worker who works in a way approved by God. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 21, Paul changes the imagery and Timothy now is, is to be like a household appliance that the master of the house finds especially useful. But look at the goal of that usefulness at, at the end of verse 21. Ready for every good work. You can see the emphasis. It's how the, the gospel is being worked out in Timothy's life. And again in, in chapter 3 and verse 16... Uh, we see that the reason all scripture is profitable is because it equips you and me for every good work. So as, as Timothy's labour is shaped by the gospel, this will mean, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 3, that Timothy is to faithfully endure hardship and suffering when the gospel clashes with the world. In his relationship with with others, as he uh, works, he's to be gentle, and, uh, but also uncompromising with the truth. In chapter 2 and verse 22, Timothy is to flee from what is evil and actively pursue endeavours that promote righteousness and faith and love and peace. In other words, in all of his endeavours, Timothy is to pursue God's redemptive purpose in the gospel. Uh, when God made us in his own image, he said that a significant part of our purpose was that we should work for him in the world. Uh, let me remind you of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, and, and Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Multiplying and filling the earth is not just about having babies. It's about developing and building human society with everything that it needs to function and flourish as a harmonious and productive community. To subdue the earth and have dominion over it means to harness and deliberately shape the world's resources as faithful stewards. Uh, faithful stewards of all that belongs to God. Uh, in his helpful book, Every Good Endeavour, Timothy Keller writes that as God's image bearers, our task is to follow God's pattern of creative work. So where God actually intends us to imitate him in his creative work. Listen to what Timothy Keller writes. It's, it's really helpful. This pattern is found in all kinds of work. Farming takes the physical material of the soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the, the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take a fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, uh, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, like in a classroom, uh, when we teach a couple to resolve their relational disputes, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling and subduing. Now you might say, well, this is all well and good, uh, but I still don't quite get how the gospel should shape my labour. You know, I'm a plumber or I'm, I'm a, a mum and all I do is change nappies and, you know, endless cleaning and washing and how does it affect the ordinary things that I do day by day? Well, my response to that is to say that your labour, whatever it is, is to have a redemptive purpose. A redemptive quality. So let's, let's just pause for a moment and consider again what the gospel is about. If, we're gonna, if the gospel is going to shape our, our labour, we need to understand this. The gospel is essentially God's great plan of salvation through Jesus. Well, we, we know that. And in the Bible, the words used to describe that salvation basically all mean to return something to its original good state. So the word redeem is often used, isn't it? For example, in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The idea of redemption is to free a prisoner from bondage and give the prisoner back their original freedom. Reconciliation is another salvation word. Uh, those who were once friends have fallen out. They're in conflict with each other. When they are reconciled, they return to their original state of friendship. 
In Colossians 1.19, Paul writes, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that's in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So reconciliation is a, is a key gospel theme, outcome. Uh, renewal is another salvation word used to describe what God is doing in the gospel. And so, for example, in Romans 12 and verse 2, we find, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not a brand new mind that the believer receives, but a, a mind restored to its original good state before sin entered the world and when man was able to think God's thoughts after him. Regeneration is another word that implies a return to life after the entrance of death. So I think you can probably see where all these words are pointing. They, they suggest a restoration of some good thing that was corrupted or broken or lost. Uh, can I illustrate this idea from a, a, a project of mine many years ago now uh, to restore something for my grandchildren? So um, this was our, our family rocking horse. It had been used by our children and it was now in a very bad way. It was under our house, it was gathering dust and there were bits broken off it and so forth. And so when our grandchildren started to come along, I thought, ah, I'll restore the rocking horse to its original glory and make it something that, that they'll really enjoy. And so um, after many hours of hard work, this was the result, you see? And you can see that the horse is now restored to its original good state. And this is just a picture of how the gospel is to shape our labour, whether it's paid work, raising a family, caring for, for the elderly, pursuing some interest that you have, teaching the Bible. All that you do is to have a redemptive quality to it. You see, God's purpose in the gospel is to fix all that is wrong with man and the world. It's redemptive. Instead of dumping us, instead of dumping our sin-broken world, God announces in the gospel that he's going to fix the root cause of the brokenness and he's going to reclaim and he's going to renew the whole of creation. And God, at infinite cost to himself through the saving work of Jesus, is rescuing and he's reclaiming and he's transforming his people with the goal of renewing the whole world when Jesus returns. Or as Paul summarised it back in verse 10 of chapter 1, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This gospel plan of God to, to build the kingdom of Jesus, to restore justice and truth, to restore love and peace and the hope of redemption of the whole of creation has a profound effect on our daily labour. Which is why Paul will tell Timothy in chapter 3 that the word of God prepares God's people for every good work. And back in chapter 1, Paul illustrates how Timothy is to keep the gospel in love and faith and in, in Christ Jesus. How is he to do it? By coming to him in Rome doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? 
It's very practical. In fact, if you look now at the remaining verses of chapter 1, just after what Paul has said in, in these critical verses 13 and 14, where he says, guard the gospel, the very next thought is not an example of guarding the content of the gospel, as, as important as that is, he'll go on to say that, but it's how Onesiphorus fulfilled the intent of the gospel through his loving act of service to Paul in prison. Have a look with me at verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Figulus uh, and Homogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many, in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. He's saying, Timothy, do you, do you want to know what it means to keep the gospel with faith and love that is in Christ Jesus? then you need look no further than the example of Anesiphorus when he visited me in that filthy dungeon in Rome. This labour of love by Anesiphorus has a redemptive quality, doesn't it? Uh, Paul doesn't say exactly what this man did for him, but given Paul's example, uh, circumstances, I think we can make a fairly accurate guess. Um, he, he would have brought Paul clean clothes. Uh, the prison didn't provide any clothes. There was no laundry service. You just lived in what you were wearing day after day. He would have brought Paul food and fresh fruit to su supplement the meagre prison rations. He would have attended to the sores on Paul's ankles that were caused by the manacles by which he was chained uh, to the, the prison wall. He would have provided the warmth of human friendship and the spiritual encouragement of, of having a brother in Christ to talk with and pray with. And likewise, Timothy was to minister to the brokenness of Paul and, and bring some measure of wholeness before he died. It had a, there was a redemptive quality about it, wasn't there? God's Holy Spirit works through our labour to bring about a redemption from the effects of sin in, on our family life on our government as we labour as good citizens in the political sphere, uh, on commerce and business and our culture you know, in art and music and drama. Our work is to promote what God loves. It's to mirror his creative work and it's to be done for his glory. And that's what I mean by being shaped by the gospel and, and this is how we're to live for Christ in our broken world. It's what Jesus intended uh, when he said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Uh, God intends us to live out the gospel in every aspect of life in this world. Uh, your daily labour will include many endeavours like cooking, ironing, caring for the children or grandchildren, working for an employer or working as um, a, a boss over employees, uh, painting the house, visiting the sick, running a business, meeting around God's word, 
spending time with your husband or your wife. Stop and think about the things you are giving your time and effort to and the way that you're doing them. So that at the end of each day, you could write as a footnote to your day's labour, like Sebastian Bach, the words, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory.